Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. It was a normal workday. I arrived early between 7 a.m. and 7.45 a.m., coming in the back door to the management offices. I slipped into my office to start knocking out some emails and organizing my day. The next team members would not be until 8.30 or 9. I was the chief operating officer of six fitness centers in Florida. My office was located close enough to the gym floor that a short hallway and a door separated me from roughly 10,000 square feet of workout equipment and sweaty nine to five workers getting their stress out before the day started. Turning on my computer, I thought I heard a yell from the gym floor. I walked to the window that was in the door and looked out over the gym floor. Not seeing anything unusual or seeing any commotion, I returned to my office. And three or four minutes later, I heard it again. This time I got up and walked out onto the floor and noticed the members watching me as I made my way to the front. They didn't offer any hint of what I was to encounter, probably because they didn't see what was coming either. I made it halfway to the front of the gym, and as I came up to the locker rooms, a personal trainer ran up to me as she exited the men's locker room. She informed me a woman had lost her mind and was tearing apart the men's locker room. They believed she was on some kind of drug and having a psychotic break. Someone was currently on the phone with 911, but she was completely out of control. Meanwhile, Concerned gym members continued to run or glide on their chosen cardio equipment, craned their necks, and took out their headphones to see what I was going to do about the matter. I headed for the men's locker room with the personal trainer, where I could hear a woman screaming and what sounded like wood breaking. Men were wrapping towels around themselves and trying to get out of the showers when I saw her run out from the toilet stalls area with a piece of broken bathroom stall door. She was swinging it and slamming it against counters and lockers, yelling incoherently. I hustled men on the side of the locker rooms closest to me out to the gym and tried to get as many people out of harm's way and grabbed a mop from another employee who minutes ago had been going about their business. The personal trainer who first informed me of what was happening and I blocked the exit from the men's room that led into the main part of the gym. So the woman would be forced to stay in the men's or women's locker rooms. She ran by us into the women's room, and we followed to make sure all women had been cleared, and most had. She fell to the floor and got sick. She looked up and, screaming about the CIA, jumped to her feet and charged me. 
For roughly three minutes, she yelled into my face about the CIA and FBI and how I had been spying on her. In those few minutes, I considered trying to take her to the floor. Or to just continue to hold her at bay. But I could see in her eyes that all bets were off, and any act that I might make in the slightest that seemed aggressive would end in a fight that, in my right mind, I would not be strong enough for, and in her out of mind, would completely overpower me. Eventually, the woman ran into the main part of the gym, where it took four male gym members to hold her down until the cops finally showed up. We all escaped this experience with a few bruises, missing hair where she had pulled it out of the head of a personal trainer, and a bite on the arm of one of the gym members that had helped hold her down. There's a terror that comes with looking someone in the eye that's no longer in the same reality as you. Someone that is purely in survival mode, fight or flight, and the fight has no restraints. For me, it has left me with a hypervigilance to anyone shouting in public. I pay more attention to homeless people passing me on the street, being sure to keep an eye out in my peripheral vision, and I pay keen attention to exits wherever I am. Drug-induced psychosis, like overdoses, continues to be on the rise. We hear horror stories of addicts living together in dangerous conditions in places like the encampment at the Big Four Corners Natural Area in Portland, Oregon, where when authorities finally cleared it out, had 150 stolen cars, live pigs, and mountains of trash that conservationists said have done decades worth of damage to the once protected wetlands. You can read more about this story by clicking the link in the show notes for this episode. Another city in the news for its open drug scene is San Francisco. Local news channels and residents have been documenting the issues there for years. Watch the citizen video in the news clip from ABC7 San Francisco. Again, you can find the link in the show notes. But these major cities are not the only areas of our country that are being overrun by drugs and drug use. Wilmington, North Carolina, located in Brunswick County, North Carolina, has seen a tenfold increase of heroin overdoses. The National Institute of Health shows deaths from overdoses in the U.S. are consistently on the rise year after year. In 2020, it was 91,799. In 2021, it was over 107,000. For perspective, in 1999, the overdose deaths were below 20,000. How do we help people that don't want help? Or better yet, how do we protect citizens and businesses from homeless drug addicts that may cause harm from drug-induced psychosis or stealing from local businesses? The woman who attacked us in the gym wasn't homeless yet, and perhaps she would have never been, but this wasn't the first instance of her dealing with a drug-induced psychotic episode, which indicates she's probably dealing with some other severe mental illness on top of the drug use. I recently read Michael Schellenberger's San Francisco. This book walks the reader through progressive polities in cities throughout the U.S., but specifically San Francisco. And their policies that deal with homelessness and the open drug scenes in those cities and how the policies are increasing the rates of homelessness 
and addiction, not reducing them as they're intended to do. A lot of the policies are focused on housing first. He writes the following in Chapter 2. In 2016, after the city of San Francisco broke up a massive 350-person homeless encampment, dozens of the homeless refused the city's offers of help. Of the 150 people moved during a single month of homeless encampment cleanups in 2018, just eight people accepted the city's offer of shelter. This highlights a real-world example of why a housing-first model is not the sole answer to cleaning up the streets and getting these individuals help. While many will say, and I agree, that incarcerating addicts and the severely mentally ill is not the answer, but enforcing laws around open drug use, theft, and a variety of petty and misdemeanor crimes, and then restructuring our justice departments to offer these violators one of two choices. Number one, enter a drug rehab program a mental or a mental health facility, or if the individual is deemed not competent to make the choice themselves, we need to fund health care facilities where these people are involuntarily committed. Number two, or option two, go to jail or pay the fine. But what's the cost of operating these quote-unquote drug courts where there's an option to enter treatment. The Stanford Network on Addiction Policy says, researchers estimate that every dollar allocated to drug courts saves approximately $4 in spending on incarceration and health care. The other option of involuntarily committing people to health care facilities seems like a return to a time in American history that we are not proud of. When asylums were overcrowded, understaffed, leaving patients dirty and without proper counseling, abuse and inhumane conditions plagued these places. However, the closure of these places left many in similar circumstances only now out in the street. And if we can, as individual states, or as a country, learn from this period of our past, then we can make the necessary changes to make these facilities places of comfort and healing. Ronald Reagan tried to lead a war on drugs. Nancy Reagan told us to say no to drugs. In 2016, President Obama sat down with musician Macklemore to raise awareness about opioid addiction. In 2018, President Trump unveiled his initiative to stop opioid abuse. President Biden said in 2022, when launching his national drug control strategy, said, this strategy goes after two big drivers of the opioid epidemic, untreated addiction and drug trafficking. The DEA continues to work to disrupt the drug trade and so on and so on. I regurgitate this information to you to show that relying on a national approach to this issue will probably never move the needle. Whether the intentions are good or the initiatives are just lip service to get or stay elected. Just like economies, the drug crisis will need to be handled on the community level. The federal government does not know the names of the friends, family, and neighbors in our local communities that are lost to drugs let alone do they know or care what drove them there. 
those with underlying mental health conditions are more prone to experience a psychotic break with prolonged alcohol or drug use. Mental health diagnoses are on the rise. Increased anxiety, increased depression, increased panic, increase in gender dysmorphia. Verywellmind.com points out that social media can contribute to unhealthy coping and impulse control issues, which are both directly connected to addiction. Can we give up social media? Can we fight the algorithms that put us in a feedback loop of our own making and play on our worst behaviors and instincts? Social media is not going away. But will parents or our parents starting to talk to their kids about social media they the way they used to talk to them about drinking at 21 with moderation or suffer the consequences? If unhealthy coping falls under a mental health heading and unhealthy coping means turning to unhealthy habits like excess drinking or drug use, then we need to start wiping out the things that help cause unhealthy coping. This is where community problem solving is key, where relationship is key. Will there be those of us that have a predisposition to addiction? Certainly. And for those individuals, learning healthy coping skills at a young age or finding a higher power will be crucial. But what can we do in general to reduce the members of our communities turning to substances in the first place? This is not always a where are my tax dollars going question locally, but one of how, how we engage with members of our community. Are we paying enough attention to identify those suffering? Some of us aren't even making eye contact with each other anymore. I've been guilty of it, especially guilty of not knowing my neighbors. But the starting point of saving those individuals on our streets, in our neighborhoods, that are prisoners to their addiction, is to be engaged with the people in our communities, to start being part of the whole and ensuring that we don't let addiction become a political issue. The question is, do we want to help heal people? Not, how do we reduce drug use in public? Or how do we stop the drug dealers? Let's empower law enforcement to do their jobs through local funding so they have the resources. But even if your local law enforcement could round up all the drug dealers and put them behind bars, there would still be addiction in your community. And users would become dealers or transition their addiction. But again, we can't even pass local legislation to fund law enforcement without engaging with one another. And when that engagement comes mostly in the form of making unhealthy coping skills into a left or right talking point, we've already lost. We've already continued to do damage. We've already put up walls that are wasting time that we could be using to provide solutions. I certainly do not have all the solutions. But I know that it starts with getting to know our local communities again and participating in your neighborhood. Additionally, the drug crisis facing all our communities does not just come from individuals choosing drugs as a coping mechanism. It comes from the irresponsibility of the way that those before us chose to close state asylums and handle severely mentally ill individuals in our communities because we also see mentally ill individuals using illegal drugs to cope with their symptoms, which are also making their symptoms worse. In an article from Psychiatric Times, Alan Francis and Mark Ruffalo write the following about the closing of state asylums. The idea was to close the massive state hospitals. 
and instead care for patients with mental illness in community settings that would end their isolation from the world and recognize their rights as citizens. When funded and practiced well, community psychiatry was enormously successful. But sadly, the money saved from closing the custodial state hospitals was often misallocated to tax cuts and prison construction, depriving the mentally ill of adequate community treatment and housing. The result has been a broken American mental health non-system that overtreats the worried well and vastly undertreats the seriously mentally ill. They continue in the article to talk about how funding continues to be cut and long-term stay options are few for the severely mentally ill. Meanwhile, federal and state funds are shoveled into prevention programs, buyback programs, extra policing, cleanups, mobile medical units, and other programs to mitigate homeless camps or to ensure needles aren't shared or to clear out trash or, again, placing a Band-Aid over the problem. Whether the individual has found themselves addicted and homeless because of poor coping skills, predisposition, or mental illness, as local communities, we need to decide if we truly want to help change lives or if we want quick cleanup solutions or if we want to let political arguments about the border or about funding or defunding the police throw us off track. The next day after the incident in the gym, myself, one of the members that had been bitten and the personal trainer that suffered some injuries met at the police station to press charges of misdemeanor assault and damages. We had discovered this was not the first drug-induced episode resulting in injury and damage. I explained to the officer that we had all met and discussed if putting this individual through whatever legal consequences there might be by us making this report was the right thing to do. I said, I thought for the remote chance that one of us would have the opportunity to stand up and tell her why we did this, which was to give her time to get clean and to have a second chance, it was worth it. We were making these reports, number one, to take her off the streets so she didn't hurt anyone else, but two, to protect her from herself. She was still in the hospital detoxing when we went to give our statement. But after the mental health hold was over, she would be free to walk out. And if her family was done with her after years of this behavior, then we were the next line of defense. Nothing ever came of us filing these reports. But I returned to the gym that day and called a local organization working to reach those suffering from addiction in our communities. We received Narcon from them should there ever be an overdose in our facility. And later that year, we participated in their fundraising 5K. This was a small action in the scheme of addiction, but it was working with our community and it was a step in the right direction. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, Please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. 
Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.